0: The riddle of how to avoid the so-called resource curse has bedeviled a generation of policymakers, economists, and academics. Resource curse refers to the negative consequences that befall a country when it discovers a valuable natural resource like oil. Oftentimes, the discovery of oil does not propel a country's economic development. In fact, it can even set a country back. My guest today is engaging in groundbreaking research that suggests some ways that a government may avoid this resource curse. Sam Hickey is a professor of politics and development at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. And in this capacity, he is engaged in some long-term research into how governments in Africa are approaching their oil sectors. This includes a fascinating study comparing how democratic Ghana and authoritarian Uganda have approached their relatively recent oil discoveries. Responsible resource extraction is a key element in the development of many countries around the world, and I found this conversation an extremely enlightening explanation about what academic research says about what works and what does not in avoiding the resource curse. This episode is part of a content partnership between the podcast and the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. We will be featuring from time to time experts from the Global Development Institute who discuss their research and also the pressing news of the day as it relates to global inequalities and development. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Development Institute, you can go to gdi.manchester.ac.uk or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And one quick note before we begin on the subject of ads, I wanted to let you know that we have one advertising space opening up in March and then two ad slots available in April. If you are with an organization and want to reach our podcast audience of global affairs professionals, including a number of senior leaders around the UN in the NGO community and governments and think tanks, please send me an email using the contact button on global dot com. I would be happy to share with you our rates and reach and impact of our ads. It's an effective way of reaching a really targeted audience of global affairs professionals. All right, now here is my conversation with Sam Hickey of the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: The term applies to the problems that countries with large amounts of natural resources, in this case hydrocarbons, oil, and gas, have had in converting that supposed benefit and dividend into um, high levels of development. So it refers to the observation that countries with large quantities of natural resources, rather than being associated with sustained growth and higher standards of political development around issues of rule of law, democratisation, have instead often been characterised by a series of problems, economic, political, social and environmental, which together sort of jointly make up what's been referred to as the the resource
0: curse. What's like an example of a resource curse afflicting a country that you might cite that could sort of make this real for people? Sure.
1: So there's there's a number of countries. Uh, the one that gets most often cited in African context would be Nigeria, um, a country where uh, natural resources were discovered around the same time as independence at a very large level. Um, Nigeria is the biggest holder of oil in Sub-Saharan Africa, over 30 million barrels of, uh, of oil. Um, and it should, on that basis, purely been able to exploit that and achieve high levels of development um, And what we've seen instead is, is every aspect of the resource curve. So economically, what tends to happen um, when you're a country with a lot of oil resources, um, it tends to increase the value of your, your currency, um, and that makes other exports um, fairly uncompetitive. That's called like, um, the Dutch
0: when, disease, right?
1: Yeah, that's a key component of the Dutch disease. Um, so the Dutch disease is one element of the economic dimension of the resource curse. Um, and it's particularly... Um, uh, so it's a particular problem for countries um, agrarian economies that are still reliant on exporting uh, large amounts of agricultural products, and maybe for those countries that were starting to move into higher value um, production, uh, into manufacturing, for example, um, it, it stops them being very competitive in those
0: areas. Uh, so, so the. You said, you know, Nigeria, obviously are also like, there's environmental degradation and corruption that goes along with uh, the resource curse, which is present in Nigeria as well, I presume.
1: That's right. I mean, there's a number of political dimensions to it. I mean, as, as well as the, just to go back to the economic one in some way, just because there's a couple more, the Dutch disease doesn't fully cover all of it. I mean, and it's not just about exchange, right? There's also sort of um, the economic problems get filtered through the economics if it's If you can make money as a political leader in a country without doing the hard work of building up a manufacturing base, which can involve um, lots of coordinating activities and building infrastructure and investing in technology, upgrading for a whole set of domestic firms, which for various reasons you may not want to be involved in because it's hard work and creating autonomous capitalists isn't great um, in terms of maintaining low levels of public accountability because they tend to put pressure on governments to deliver on public goods. then there's other reasons why if you're oil rich you might um, uh, see aspects of both the economic and the, and the political uh, resource curse um, inequality wise as well this is these you know oil doesn't really generate a huge amount of employment if you've got most of the countries we're talking about, particularly sub-Saharan Africa at the moment, demographically, you've got vast numbers of people in the um, labour bracket, um, sort of 15 to 40 demographic, um, who need work, and oil isn't going to solve that problem. Uh, It's it's, it's capital, not
0: labour-intensive. So um, there's a a range of economic problems. So... so What has been the conventional way that policymakers and academics and and others have sought to help countries avoid this resource curse? What's been um, the the approach that they've taken over the years?
1: Mm, Sure. So there's a direct read across from the type of um, analysis that gets made of the resource curse which is heavily influenced by new institutional economics. The idea that what you need is good institutions in place. Like much you, need a, a,
0: you need like a, a country to have institutions like Norway. Like To the extent that a resource-rich country has institutions like Norway, it may avoid the resource curse.
1: There's definitely that thinking. It goes back a little bit be, before that. So the Norway reference is really a reference to the way in which Norway went about governing its oil specifically. And I'll, I'll come back to that. But... Behind that is a deeper sense that there's the needs to be uh, rules and institutions in place which protect property rights, for example, um, which put checks on executive power. Um, and this feeds into and uh, comes from an analysis of the political dimension of the resource curse, uh, whereby oil tends to support rent-seeking forms of politics, enabling political rulers in developing countries to cream off the rents from oil and not engage in more productive activities. Uh, it means you can engage in strengthening the military, um, those in power get an inordinate amount of uh, financial advantage over oppositional forces. Um, so it becomes easier to maintain less democratic regimes in power. So there's a, there's a broader sense in which um, institutions matter, not just in terms of the specific arrangements for governing oil, but in the, in, in the broader sense of executive checks and uh, checks on the, on executive power. Um, so in terms of how, how of, uh, so your, your question about how policymakers have tried to respond to this, there's been, I guess, three dimensions, um, one of which has been a broad movement around good governance, trying to put in place um, support for the rule of law, property rights, checks on executive power that you saw through um, the 80s and 1990s um, around the good governance agenda. Then you have specific measures to counter the economic dimensions of uh, Dutch disease and the economic dimensions of the resource curse. So you might want to encourage governments to put in place sovereign wealth funds. These are where oil revenues go and it limits the release of oil revenues onto the economy. Uh, so you shouldn't have the, quite the same effects in terms of inflation and making exchange rates less competitive. Uh, also saves for later generations. You know, a lot of the new oil producing company, uh, countries haven't really got vast resources that are going to last for the rest of uh, even half a century. They, these are sort of two to three decades worth. So if there's not something like that in place, uh, then it will be a problem. I mean, the UK was short, too short-sighted to put in place a sovereign wealth fund. So this is not just a problem for developing countries. Mm-hmm. So the, the benefits of North Sea oil uh, have not really been saved okay. up for future generations here. So that's the second one. You put in place mechanisms to, to stop the economic examples. So you might put on in restraints against borrowing, against future oil earnings, for example, or insist that oil revenues get allocated to other productive areas of the economy invested in agriculture. That can have really important gendered effects, given that if oil is going to um, have negative effects on agriculture, that's going to be disproportionately felt by women who are uh, you know employed as smallholders in that sector very often in Uh, in the uh, developing countries we're talking about. Uh, And then thirdly, coming to your Norway model, um, specifically, how do you govern oil? Do you have a national oil company that takes a stake and enters joint ventures with international oil companies or do you just open up to um, international uh, exploitation of the oil? Um, Do you have a – what type of regulatory um, agency do you have which seeks to oversee uh, the activities of international oil companies? And what policy functions do you have? And in particular, what do you do with those three things? All governments need to make policies. All governments need to regulate. And most governments want to um, have a commercial interest in oil as well. But how do you put those three things together? Do you have them in separate entities or have them together? And um, the Norway model is to separate them. Um, I guess what's interesting is that if you're going to have three separate entities doing all of those tasks, then you need fairly high capacity some really good work has been done on looking at oil producers as to whether or not it makes sense to adopt the Norway model. Um, And they, this Mark Thurber, Patrick Heller and others, found that basically unless you've got really high levels of state capacity, um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense um, to to, to disaggregate those functions and unbundle. You might be better off keeping them all in one place. Um, And that's something we're exploring in some of our countries
0: so, so you've sort of like outlined the, um, you know, conventional ways in which policymakers have have approached or have recommended have approached, sought to uh, help countries avoid the resource curse. But you're engaged in some provocative new research that offers an alternative alternative model, uh, which, which to me is, is, is fascinating, not least for the fact that the two countries, uh, that you sought to do case studies of are seemingly so dissimilar to each other. Um, can you talk a, a bit about your research on Ghana and Uganda and, and why you chose these countries? I mean, on the one hand, Ghana is, you know, a stable multi-party democracy, one of the fastest growing economies, if not the fastest growing economy in Africa. And then Uganda is, um, In an authoritarian country, even sort of creeping and seemingly more and more authoritarian by the day. Uh, Yet your research finds that Uganda is actually the one doing a better job of stewarding these resources for the betterment of, of its people. Can you sort of describe your research, explain why you picked these two countries and uh, sort of offer some insights into why this sort of conventional model is, is falling short.
1: Sure. I think the, Our findings are very specific to a certain aspect of oil governance where you can argue that Uganda outperforms Ghana, which is really around deal-making with international oil corporations. and That's where they're comparable because in other ways, Ghana has moved much further. It's moved to production uh, and is actually um, distributing revenues associated with oil to developmental purposes. Uganda still hasn't got oil out of the ground. Mm. So the comparison between the countries were – really on the extent to which they seem to be making deals with international oil companies that would benefit would be of benefit down the line and this is really important the types of ways in which countries benefit from oil is is, is rests heavily on the production sharing agreements the deals they make with an, international oil companies and the, and the take that governments get from that. So we thought these would be good comparisons because they've roughly got the same quantities of oil. Um, they're not the sort of mid-level producers, not massive producers like Angola, Nigeria. and um, They found them around about the same time, um, the oil, uh, around 2006 for Uganda, 2007 for um, Ghana. And yet, like you say, they look very different in terms of a, a good governance reading, um, Ghana better governed, more democratic compared to Uganda. Um, we wanted to test whether that was that was playing out, as you would expect, uh, and compare it with an alternative reading, which tries to get beyond institutions and look at how forms of politics and power relations that sit behind them shapes how those institutions actually work in practice. Um, So we compared the deals that were made between the two countries. And we found that um, the process through which Ghana went was was, uh, at odds with its reputation as being a really well governed country. So it entered into deals with international um, oil companies before it had put in place legislative arrangements um, to do that in terms of new laws to govern uh, the the, the sector. Um, Some of those rules that had been put in place to offset the Dutch disease effects, for example, so uh, a a law which prevented governments from borrowing against future oil earnings, collateralising debt was voted against by um, the, the ruling party. Uh, to overturn it on partisan grounds. Um, And this is around the same time that Ghana was undergoing a macroeconomic crisis and it exacerbated that because they ended up taking a very large $3 billion loan from China, uh, initially at least. And so they seem to be not only ignoring what a rules-based order would look like, but even when they had the rules in place, overturning them as a result of the short-termist pressures that you can sometimes get in multi-party democracies.
0: That's Not interesting. So, so the fact that they're a democracy, you know, almost makes it harder for them to think long term against the resource curse and makes them want to sort of, um, provide, you know, the dividends to their supporters to, to, you know, to, to the people more quickly. So they might be incentivized to, um, do sort of the wrong economic thing, which is politically expedient though.
1: That's right, um, but I think we wouldn't blame, put the blame on democracy uh, per se. I think it's high levels of political competition in a context where clientelistic politics is already mm. quite powerful, and, and you know democracy doesn't wipe away patron-client politics. Um, mm. Just as it hasn't in the USA, um, and no. we still have cases of corruption uh, elsewhere uh, in, in, the, in the Western world, the so-called developed world. So. It's, it's, it's an issue of how long-term processes of state building, you know, how the states get the capacity to do things, interact with the pressures of political competition. And certain countries like, like the UK, Germany, Japan, they had a long time of building states before they had political competet- competition to put in pressure on states to distribute resources to particular groups, Um, We've asked sub-Saharan African countries to do both at once in a very short period, in in the post-independence period, to both build strong, capable states and deal with political competition. And they're just very difficult things to manage. So we're not putting the blame. We're not saying democracy is a bad thing here. Hmm. What we're saying is particular interaction of these two processes can create problems. And there's a very specific example of that in, in Ghana. So in terms of how you govern oil, you need really well-trained technocrats who know their stuff, who can sit around the table with oil companies and argue the case for why their country's resources um, need to be governed in a particular way, why the national government should take a particular cut of the, of the benefits of oil. Um, and what happened in Ghana when there was a change of uh, party in 2000, the uh, Ghana National Petroleum Corporation, which is where all the highly trained technocrats sat, and um, was seen to be a creature of the outgoing political party, and the new party came in and decimated it, um, got rid of ninety percent of the staff, and the deals were made with presidential advisers without the highest level of expertise in the sector. So you had this because of political competition directly undermining some of the state capacity that had been there. Whereas Uganda gets lucky in a sense that the the president shows an early commitment to building up technocratic capacity in the oil sector. And then protects those civil servants over time and enables them to do their work very unusually because you've you've not got a political ruler in Uga- in uganda that you would trust to govern the economy in the best way uh, other research we've done shows how willing he is to capture the central bank or the ministry of finance just to secure his place in power but there's something about oil that he's he's, he's trying to govern in a more rules-based way for Various reasons. So he lets his technocrats do their job, and they end up getting much better deals than Ghana did, even with the same oil companies. So, so that, actually, that, yeah,
0: that, my, that was going to be my, my question. Like, so, like, what did Uganda do do right specifically?
1: Well, the president invested early in capacity building um, from around 1986, 87. He had offers from Western oil companies that they could come in and exploit the oil. And he said, he asked, how many geoscientists do we have in the country? And he was told they only had one. So he said, no, we're not going to shake hands with you until we're standing up. And he sent lots of people out for training. Um, and then they got support from Norway and others, and they became really credible technocrats. But then, because he didn't leave power, um, there's no change in the, in the political bureaucratic relationship over time. So he still trusts them to do the deals. Um, he's only overridden them once or twice. Uh, one very recent case, which we could get to if we have time, uh, which has created a, a bit of a disaster in the, in the, in the sector. Um, and he also plays a long game. Because he knows he's going to be in power for a long time, mm-hmm. talking to the oil companies, they're amazed that he's willing to sit around the table for 10 hours just to get the best deal for mm-hmm. Uganda. <laughs> on this and so you know there's there's something about his ideas of resource nationalism and uh his his technocrats that he's willing to empower that seems to be doing the trick but we we, we don't know what he'll do when he gets the money you know we well know that actually that's going
0: to be my question so so like is the quality of the deal a useful predictor in how once the money actually comes it will be sort of Stewarded and usefully spent. So, for example, will, you know, the money that, uh, Museveni, the, the president of, of Uganda has been able to extract from this deal, can, can there, is there any, um, way in which we can be more assured that these funds will be used to like, you know, good causes to the betterment of his people as opposed to like lining the pockets of his, you know, political allies?
1: Mm, that's a really good question. And we, we wait and see. If you if you look what's happened so far, um, money has been generated by oil around because of taxation. Uganda's got a fairly tough fiscal regime, and it's managed to extract quite large benefits from its tax policies from various international oil companies. And that money has gone into a, a bespoke petroleum revenue fund. Um, we don't. We haven't got strong evidence that that's been misused as yet to maintain the. Um, Evany in power, um, we have got good evidence that other aspects of public funds have been used um, hugely in 2011 and 2016. Um, that money has been used for purposes it wasn't supposed to have been, usually though for major infrastructural projects um, to co-fund and, and, and match finance with Chinese loans, for example. So it's difficult to know exactly where to what to think about that. Is that a valid investment in the country's future? Because Uganda does need a lot of investments in infrastructure around major dams, maybe railways. That's a bit more controversial. But the problem with, um, you know, you can get quite good deals in this area if you centralise rent seeking around the presidents and senior technocrats. It's quite easy to control that process. Once you start generating revenue, that then you've got a much more, a wider range of actors making arguments about, you know, which part of the country should benefit. Should money go to the oil producing regions? Um, it, it goes starts being fed through a budgetary process that has lots of lobbying around it. That's when it, it becomes much more difficult to maintain a central grip on on, the, on these mm. aspects. So, so what,
0: taking a just a step back, um. You know, more broadly speaking, what does your research show, say beyond Uganda or beyond Ghana, about how a country um, from the developing world can avoid the the resource curse when it strikes oil?
1: Mm -hmm. I think the big message to the policy agenda is that state capacity really matters, there's a huge amount of work being done on transparency and accountability around oil governance. And that we're not belittling that. It's hugely important. Ghana's gone much further than Uganda on that, and it's starting to reap dividends in terms of oversight of how government is governing oil. So we don't say that accountability isn't important, but it tends to obscure the significance of state capacity. And it's partly a neoliberal bias uh, that's been there in international development discussions and around discussions of of natural resource governance away from allowing the state to play a major role. But we find that to be critical. Um, If the Norway model's to work, um, we're now studying this in five countries, we're looking at Kenya, Mozambique and Tanzania, as well as Ghana and Uganda. And it's ongoing research, but one of the emerging findings is that if you haven't had a prior period of building up high degrees of state capacity to govern oil within your oil technocracy, the exploration production departments, the regulatory capacity and so on, then it's really difficult to make these new institutional arrangements work. So I think that's, that's, the, that's the big takeaway around uh, the policy agenda, to invest in, in, in building high levels of state capacity and protecting them
0: what does that state capacity look like like can you give me an example of of what what good state capacity in the developing world looks like in terms of how to manage the oil sector
1: It's often in fairly small units um of governments it's difficult to get whole scale governance reform in developing countries there's too many incentives um for governments not to work how they should in terms of how government needs to distribute rents to maintain themselves in power, for example. So it's often fairly small units staffed by um, you know, up, up to hundreds of, of, of technocrats all told, but with a fairly small um, management group uh, who are not just um, expert, but also highly committed. Uh, what's notable about some of the agencies that have performed um, very well, not just in Africa but elsewhere. Is this strong sense of esprit de corps of organisational culture where people are committed uh, to the national interest, maybe particularly patriotic. They've maybe gone through a very tough process of exploration before commercial quantities of oil were discovered, and so it's not just about these ministries being high capacity, being well paid, being treated as better than the normal civil service workers are treated. It's also something about the organizational culture that leaders can build by being inclusive, by offering lots of training and showing that they value their staff and that their careers will be advanced if they buy into the mission of the organization. Um, So it's like pockets
0: of competencies within governments. Very much so, yeah. Um, that's interesting. And and as opposed to like government-wide um, expertise, you're, you're talking about if there's like a core group of committed individuals within a bureaucracy, that can make a huge difference in the whole you know, outcome in regards to a country's ability to extract its resources for the benefit of its people.
1: That's right. And we see that across a, a range of, of countries. It's not just Africa. We see that in Latin America with Petrobras, for example, at least for a certain period, um, Indonesia as well. Um, now, the problem is that you can have very effective um, state-owned oil companies, uh, but they're very effective at just generating rents, which then the rulers cream off and don't distribute amongst their people. So Angola is a classic case of that, where you have a high-capacity pocket of effectiveness in that in the oil sector. Great at getting good deals with international oil companies, but then the rents are all taken by the, the ruling family as well, which has now been displaced. Uh, in power so uh, again it's not just enough to have that high capacity you need to know what it's doing with the revenues as well
0: all right well well sam thank you so much for your time this was fascinating i look forward to more of your research in the coming years yeah
1: i be happy to report back once we know a bit more about those other countries i mentioned
0: all right thank you all for listening thank you to sam that was helpful interesting uh, i You thought I knew about the resource curse going into this conversation and about Dutch disease and those kinds of things, but I really learned a whole lot from this conversation. I suspect you do, too. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, resource extraction, you know, done responsibly can be a very effective means of development, but all too often it is not done responsibly or sustainably, and so we're left with a mess. But Sam Hickey and other researchers are trying to help us figure out how to avoid that mess. Anyway, see you next time. And do give me uh, a call, send me an email, hit me up on Twitter if you are interested in learning about our ads, our ad policies, our reach and impact. All right, see you later. Bye.